Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posting December 25, 2015, we talk with World Policy Institute Senior Fellow James H. Nolt, also an adjunct professor at New York University, about the new face of gunboat diplomacy. U.S. Navy ships challenging Beijing's controversial expansion of claims to territorial waters. His WPJ blog post on the issue is headlined, Conflict in the South China Sea. You're listening to World Policy on Air. Now this. We agree on the need for bold steps to lower tensions, including pledging to halt further reclamation, new construction, and militarization of disputed areas in the South China Sea. If there's anything that should be halted, it is the U.S. stirring up the South China Sea issue. They should stop playing up tension in the South China Sea. Avoid taking actions that could inflame the situation. Call it the new face of yesterday's gunboat diplomacy. Before calling on China to stop building bases atop normally submerged reefs in the South China Sea at an Asia-Pacific meeting last month, President Barack Obama ordered U.S. warships to cruise the disputed waters nearby, thus rejecting Beijing's territorial claim and the tensions he sees it raising. A Chinese foreign ministry spokesman shot back, rhetorically, that Washington's demonstration of naval power was the real problem, and neither side seemed immediately ready to back down. In fact, we might expect more such U.S. maneuvers to underscore international law on freedom of the seas, according to World Policy Institute senior fellow James H. Nolt, also an adjunct professor at New York University. Meanwhile, the expanded Chinese military presence has apparently encouraged Chinese poachers engaged in destruction of major reefs to harvest giant clams, hawksbill turtles, and other precious sea life. While there's always the possible threat of more than rhetoric in response to all this, U.S. and Chinese naval vessels have gone ahead with previously scheduled joint training exercises, and Nolte does not foresee actual hostilities. His blog post on the issue is headlined, Conflict in the South China Sea, and we spoke about it recently for this podcast. Professor Nolte, welcome to World Policy on Air. It's my pleasure to be here. Just what has China been doing building basing on these normally submerged reefs? Well, this is a relatively new departure for China, especially the scale of the construction, but it's not completely unknown in the region of Vietnam and Philippines, who are rival claimants to some of the same sea area, have also enhanced uh, reefs and and built constructions and stationed uh, small forces and civilian populations uh, in in the region. But I think what makes the Chinese uh, effort somewhat more provocative from the United States viewpoint is that the scale of the construction is is bigger than uh, some of the other claimants have undertaken thus far. And how military is it? Well, there are airstrips involved and uh, docking facilities that could be used for military aircraft. But I want to emphasize that the strategic potential, despite the fact that many people say these these islands are very strategic, the strategic potential of them is very, very limited. Because in an actual shooting war, those uh, bases would be extremely vulnerable and would be quickly liquidated. They're they're not really defensible. Um, They couldn't really, in a a wartime situation, uh, influence uh, the balance of power or the ability to transit those seas, they just become uh, easily a neutralized basis. But 
they have great symbolic value as kind of markers to lay down the Chinese claims in the region, and I think it's much more as symbolic markers that they count rather than as real strategic assets. What legal basis uh, does China cite for buildup of those reefs and claim to the waters nearby? Well, um, according to international law, if you build on submerged reefs, that doesn't automatically extend your territory. Obviously, if that were possible, then people would be uh, building up reefs all over the ocean uh, and creating artificial islands in various places, the ways of extending claims. So according to the law of the sea, that's not a valid way to extend claims. Claims should be uh, relative to inhabited islands and, and continental territory and not uh, built simply build up reefs. But uh, China may have a somewhat different interpretation of the law than the United States in this regard, and particularly because it's, a, it's a claiming the 12-mile right of navigation uh, from these reefs, which is uh, also a relatively unprecedented uh, claim compared to that of the others. Most of the rival complaint, uh, the, the rivals for uh, control of the sea are mainly interested in the, in the economic resources, the oil underneath, not so much the navigation rights that would come with the 12-mile exclusive navigation zone. And what natural resources are thought to be under the reefs or in the waters nearby? Well, currently it's mainly just fisheries, uh, fish resources, but there's extensive oil deposits uh, in the region according to exploratory uh, drilling, but so far none of the actual oil production has been developed uh, as of yet. It's just a potential for uh, significant oil. And part of the reason it hasn't been developed is until these claims are settled, it's not clear exactly who would be able to illegally uh, exploit the resources underneath the, the South China Sea. You write that there was some serious debate within the Obama administration over what action to take in response to the Chinese development. Say more about that. Well, there, there's always been a consideration. The United States, uh, although it upholds the law of the sea, the UN, uh, United Nations Convention on Law of the Sea, does not have an official position as to whose claim is more valid for the South China Sea. And there are, as I mentioned, rival claimants, including Philippines, Vietnam, Malaysia, uh, Indonesia, Brunei, uh, and all of their claims overlap with each other. So the U.S. takes no position on whose claim has greater validity. But what it does insist on is the freedom of navigation for all countries in the South China Sea and, and thereby not building up reefs to be able to claim exclusive navigation, which uh, China has apparently done. Uh, it, it's that point that, that really irritates the United States, not so much what the exact sea boundaries would be, because, of course, the U.S. has no claims to any of that oil since the U.S. isn't proximate to the area. But running warships through the area, I mean, uh, uh, what was the debate about that and the, and the possible uh, response from China? Well, my interpretation, and this is only um, my opinion because I don't have uh, I don't have an ear inside the administration, but my interpretation is that we that that was an an issue which the U.S. wanted to press in part in in reaction to uh, extensive alleged Chinese hacking of U.S. government uh, security records, which uh, which the U.S. was deeply irritated by, and yet didn't have necessarily a direct symmetrical response to. So I take this as a kind of asymmetrical response to the hacking incident that the United States showed that it could continue to assert 
what it has always claimed, which is the right of free navigation, including for naval vessels in the South China Sea. Besides the response of China's uh, foreign ministry in uh, Manila, where that meeting was, how has Beijing reacted to the U.S. demonstration or provocation as it undoubtedly sees it? Uh, what could it do up to uh, and including blocking or even uh, attacking a U.S. vessel? Well, I, I sincerely doubt that China would take armed action to interfere with U.S. vessels in the, in the region because that would have uh, very dangerous escalatory uh, implications. And although China's verbal reaction was was vigorous and, and it, its protests, um, you know, strong, it did not take any practical action to stop the U.S. or to interfere with U.S. operations in the area. So I expect that China will continue to make more of a rhetorical uh, protest than a practical one, although if the U.S. continues to repeat this kind of action, uh, China may take uh, some more measured steps such as um, overt discrimination against American firms investing in China or something like that that would be seen as bothersome but not necessarily uh, a warlike move. Uh, on the other hand, we see that China still welcomed the planned visit by a U.S. warship to Shanghai and sent other Chinese vessels to the U.S. Navy's Mayport base near Jacksonville, Florida, for joint training exercises in the southeastern Atlantic. What should we make of that? Well, that, that is really indicative of what I suggested, that China's response, although rhetorically vigorous, is actually quite measured. And their um, willingness to take practical steps so far is limited. But I wouldn't interpret that to mean that there would never be any reaction if the U.S. continued to repeat this action I would expect that China, because they've, they've made such a strong statement, would have to have some additional measures that they'd take if, the, if the, this kind of sale-by continues uh, on a regular basis. If it's a one-off kind of event, then I think they'd probably be willing to uh, let relations continue without interruption and just be, uh, have the one uh, rhetorical protest. I wonder if there are extraneous factors as well. You wrote back in October that actual fighting is unlikely, and I wonder if that prediction seems more or less likely following Turkey's shootdown of a Russian fighter jet. It claimed it had entered its airspace from a mission over Syria and Moscow's quick choke on tourism and trade. I wonder whether that episode makes it seem more imperative for a nation to take action when it feels um, its rights have been violated or whether it makes it wary of taking such action because of what the countermeasures might be? Well, I think the, the Turkish act, action is, is interesting, and the comparable lack of Chinese action is also important. It, ironically, in a situation like that of Turkey, uh, this also went on quite a bit in the Cold War, it's the minor powers who are more likely to act, let's say, irresponsibly in a crisis, as, for example, Cuba... Uh, has had done in during the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, when Cuba was uh, in, was in some ways more provocative than the Soviet Union itself, which, which exercised caution. The great powers, in a sense, have to have more responsibility for prevention of of all-out war, since they would do most of the fighting and suffer the consequences. So, in many cases, the the actions of the great powers are more measured than uh, a lesser power like Turkey. Turkey, of course, knows that. 
Russia cannot make a strong reaction because Turkey as a NATO member would have American backing in its defense. So it, it can, in some sense, act a little bit provocatively and yet expect that, that, that uh, Russia can't escalate in response. Although Russia did, of course, take non-military uh, economic measures that may have some impact on, on uh, Turkey, but not li- likely very large. China, on the other hand, has a very, very important economic and trade relation with, with the United States, uh, very large numbers of Chinese students in the United States. There's uh, so many ties between the two countries which are important and, and uh, mutually beneficial that China would uh, have to think much more carefully about whether, whether it would want to take any action that would jeopardize that very important relationship. And I think that the answer is, is probably no, that they won't want to jeopardize the, the very uh, strong and extensive uh, commercial and ties that already exist between the two countries. So what do you expect overall in terms of Beijing's action on and around those artificial islands and U.S. policy in response? Well, I think both uh, parties will continue in the direction they've laid out. That is, China will uh, continue to develop those as as, uh, potential markers of its claims. It may, in fact, even initiate construction on on some new uh, island project in the region because... um, its competitors have done that in the past and, and, and thereby, you know, in a sense, put down markers to their own claims. And I think it's merely uh, imitating what others have done, although doing it on a larger scale. And I think the U.S. will uh, measure its own response according to its satisfaction or dissatisfaction with Chinese behavior in other issue areas, like, for example, the hacking. So if U.S.-China relations are generally on sound footing and the U.S. isn't too disappointed, it may not repeat those kinds of offensive uh, or provocative actions that the Chinese dislike. It may just turn, uh, turn a blind eye to uh, further Chinese development, as it has done in the past. Professor Noll, thank you. It's my pleasure to talk with you. World Policy Institute Senior Fellow James H. Nolt is also an adjunct professor at New York University. His recent post on the WPJ blog is headlined, Conflict in the South China Sea. Featured in the new WPJ Winter Issue, you'll find articles on Latin America's evolving economy and culture, on the changing face of Cuba, black sites on the internet, and deadly interactions on the Syria-Turkey border. And listen next week when our podcast will focus on Britain's impending decision on whether or not to remain in the European Union. World Policy On Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Christopher Shea... Managing Editor Jaffa Frederick, Online News Editor and Podcast Producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern. <laughs>